0: Well, James, I can't believe the success we've had with our first podcast. Literally one million listens. It, it, uh, that, and that's, exactly. just, that's in Fal- Falmouth alone. That's <laughs> just in Falmouth, yeah. Um, and thank you, to, you know, to everyone, well, both of you, who wrote in saying that you'd like to hear more. Yeah. Um, thanks Mum, thanks Dad. <laughs> yes,
1: <laughs> people did say some very nice things, that was very sweet. So we are uh, in um, Trelissic, it's um, a National Trust property which is near the Helford, I think. I might have to look that up. I've been here like a thousand times probably. Uh, anyway, it's a big country house, which has a fascinating history that I, I don't know what it is, but it's a big country house. So there were
0: probably murders, beheadings, no, political okay.
1: intrigue. Terrible stuff, but we're, we're kind of avoiding it. And we're going in for a little sort of woodlandy rambled walk. So we're going to walk down a hill. My children refer to it as Geranimo Hill. <laughs> because I like to charge that shouting Dranimo. <laughs> God, I don't know why, but it makes them happy. So uh, yes, so it'll be more. I don't think there's any styles on this one, but there will be dog walkers. There will and be, and there might be rain. There might be. <laughs> there has been rain. There will almost certainly be more rain. Yes. So we were going to talk about getting science fiction onto screen. Yes. This is what. We, so I think just putting uh, putting
0: credentials on the table. So Matthew, you have written for Doctor Who. I have. Three episodes? I have written a single episode under the baton of Russell T Davies mm. and a two-part episode story under the baton of Mr Stephen Moffat. There you yes. go. Uh,
1: you've also developed a Star Wars TV series with George Lucas for two
0: years in LA. I did. We, um, yes, we were part of, a, I was part of a writing team that consisted of um, future Doctor Who showrunner Chris Chibnall Mm-hmm. Um, and the creator of the rebooted Battlestar Galactica and Outlander, uh, Mr. Ron D. Moore, mm-hmm. um, amongst others. Um, and we, um, yes, over two years we broke and wrote between us no less than 50 scripts um, for Star Wars Underworld, as it was called. Okay. Yes, live action Star Wars show, never never saw the light of day. Um, also, you've adapted Arthur C. Clarke.
1: Yes, and and Philip K. Dick. Yes, um, am I missing? Oh, uh, oh *Life on Mars*. Probably
0: and is that uh, science fiction? Well, I, I he, is, it, is it. We'll talk I don't, about that. I, yeah, we'll talk about what science fiction yes. is, won't we? We'll get to that. So, yes, I, I have done those things. So, I, I guess, um, and also my partner Emma Frost um, has written uh, *The Man in the High Castle*, which is another Philip K. Dick. Um, uh, story, obviously, um, for Amazon. Yeah. So yes, uh, quite good experience in the in the in the science fiction genre. I so guess. on my part, uh, I really like science
1: fiction. Uh, so I'd say we're level pegging. Uh, I think we're to about the same. No I, no, I have got a credential. I wrote an episode of Hey Dougie for CBBC in yeah. which Roly, the rhino, yeah. uh, turns up on the bike from Akira. Oh, and I come think on! for that's... preschool television, that's pretty good. CBBC. That sounds groundbreaking in my yes. Box. But I think you know. I think you, I would say you have more, somewhat more practical experience than me. But also, I want to ask how you get
0: science fiction onto the telly because it's a weird, it's a difficult thing sometimes. I think it is. It's a very very difficult thing. I think I think science fiction is one of the hardest genres to crack in television, and I think that's and in movies. And I think that's because. Um, science fiction is a genre, is often a misunderstood genre, For a, first of all. I think people tend to think of science fiction as being spaceships, um, aliens, battles. Um, so, you know, I mean, people often say Star Wars is science fiction. They say that E.T. is science fiction. Um, and, and in truth, I think these are more in the fantasy genre. Um, science fiction tends to be a, a genre of ideas. And often very introspective ones, anyone who 's read you know the asimov 's foundation books or really sort of anything um, by the great science fiction writers will will, will tell you that, that that yes, there often is a story, but that really what 's on the, the mind of the writer a lot of the time is Thoughts and ideas, and often the suppression or the p- polluting or the twisting of ideas um, by different characters. That's quite difficult to portray sometimes in a in a drama. Yeah, because I think it's like with Star Wars. I think
1: that sometimes there's a bit of snobbishness, but sometimes it. Well, Star Wars isn't asking science fiction questions, is it? It's kind of it's it's like in a good way fairy tales with trappings of science fiction i, I guess I, I don't will tell you what
0: stephen moffat described star wars as do you say lego with shouting <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> and that's why i like it two things i like <laughs> two things i enjoy very much so it's not necessarily criticism but uh yeah he's, he's not wrong
0: yes um, i mean whereas star trek
1: it is it, often a story of ideas it asks um, questions didn't and it? it asked questions do you know what can i just, just share because only i thought of this the other day something that infuriated me about the new star trek film and it's just a small thing and that was unreasonably cross about it. Right. Where, so the whole thing about Star Trek is, there's no money. There's, there's just no cash, in it. They don't need it. They've evolved beyond it. Right. And in the, I think one of the Star Trek recent ones, uh, Jim Kirk, which, there's a gate, if you wonder what that sound was. <laughs> Jim Kirk goes to a bar, asks for a beer, mm-hmm. and then slides some coins or something like science fiction credits or something across the bar. Right. And I was thinking, there's no money in Star Trek! Oh. Like, that's a really important thing. Right. That's just very quietly under the
0: radar. It's showing you a completely different society, where it's not, it's not a capitalist society. That's interesting. I actually didn't realise that Star Trek was supposed to posit the notion of a post-capitalist... It kind um, of is, I yeah. Mean, the reason why Star Trek, I think, is so successful and so continually successful um, is because it shows us as the very best versions of ourselves, that we have used technology and experience to become better as a species and as a ridiculous optimist I still believe even today in all that we've been going through that we are capable of solving our problems and finding amazing solutions and I think that's what Gene Roddenberry I I, I have read Gene Roddenberry's original document that he sent um, to the network I think it was NBC but someone I'm sure will correct me if that's not the case but his original document for Star Trek um, which I think was called the Star Trek um, and it was it was so full of optimism. It was all about man at his best. Um, we would now say humanity at their best, of yes. course. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, and that's a wonderful ethos. Yeah. Oh, it's a, it's a lovely beach now. It is absolutely glorious it's cove. It's very pretty, isn't it? I've actually... Yes, I've been on this cove on my boat, James. Uh, oh. shall I, have I got the boat back <laughs>
1: into it? Oh, the boat. The boat. The boat's back. It's a lovely cove. The super yacht. The super yacht. <laughs> yes. It's a super boat. Sleeps almost it's, a whole person. Yeah, there you go, yes. This is gorgeous.
0: But, uh, oh, this is wish you could see
1: this, listeners. Yeah, this is, this is not that interesting to listen to, is it? Probably, but... But... Uh, oh, look at the sun reflecting off the... Oh, no, oh, shut no. up now. Yeah. But yeah, so... How... I... I... pretty much everything I've written is a spec. So a spec script, people who don't know, is a script you've written, speculatively. Like, no one asked for it, frankly. <laughs> but they're gonna get it. They're gonna get it. But it's something you just write. You think, rather than trying to pitch an idea, I'm gonna write a whole script and you'll see what I've actually... what I was trying to do. And you might not like it, but at least it's really clear what I've done. Yeah. And so I... I mean, I think everything I've written has had some element of science fiction or fantasy
0: or... what's get called genre telly. Yeah. Um. And it is hard. It's growing. I mean, it's growing, it's growing as a genre again. Um, obviously, the success of Game of Thrones, which, of course, wasn't science fiction, but did legitimise fantasy as a grown-up, inverted commas, grown-up genre that could have real big money spent on it for television. And as a result, everyone's now looking for big science fiction again. And, of course, um, Westworld came along, the, the reimagining... Um, of, uh, of that Michael Crichton story. Um, and that's definitely, again, um, whether you like it or don't like it, you can't deny that it's real science fiction and it's exploring ideas. And as you say, James, it's asking questions.
1: Yeah, I think that's it. I think asking questions is the real kind of key to it. Like, um, yes, Westworld's an interesting one. I think oft- oft- that kind of ties in what I was gonna say was, it's so often easier if you're... Some of the things I've pitched are the spec scripts, I've written, I've got to a certain stage, and then commissioners, not even developers, commissioners, have gone, do you know, if this was a book, we might have taken a punt on it. Mm. But because it's an original work, it's not, I don't mean, really it's original, I mean, just it's an original work. It's not yeah. based on any IP. Yeah. It's, it's, really, it's, going to be hard, it's going to be hard for me to pitch it to the person above me, and it kind of fizzles out. Yes. But I do, I'm really interested when people just take a property that already exists, like Westworld. And then goes, right, we're going to start off with that and then we'll do our own thing. And sometimes they go too far and it doesn't make any sense. But Battlestar Galactica was fantastic.
0: Yeah, absolutely. did Um, something
1: really interesting with that idea.
0: No, absolutely. And and in in fact, you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the most incredible mind-bending twists that they brought to Battlestar was the notion that the Cylons had disguised themselves to look just like us. Um, And you can imagine, you know... You can imagine the conversation about, but oh, but the Cylons are so iconic and they're very scary with their roving electronic eye and their voice and their way they talk. You know, it's very cool and can't we do that? Um, and it's, it takes a bit of, it takes real guts and a, and a bit of, uh, frankly, a bit of intellectual um, courage to see the idea, the power of the idea that the Cylons have um, disguise themselves to be indistinguishable. I think it's, um, is it Boomer? Boomer, I think. Yeah. There's two boomers, isn't there, at the start? And you see her every time in the title sequence. Um, a, a, a real boomer and a fake boomer. And it's great. It raises really interesting philosophical questions and it actually makes it scarier. And it makes you question everything, which I mm. think is the job of a, of
1: a good science fiction show. Is you just start looking at the world around and you go, "Oh, maybe things aren't quite the way I'd...
0: Always assumed, and I think it, it did that incredibly well. It did. I mean, it raises an issue because when you're rebooting an old idea, um, and um, you know, obviously, one of the first things you're you're doing is you're rebooting that idea, presumably because you're very excited by it. You liked it. You either watched it as a child, or you watched it when it was first on a few years earlier, and you really, really, um, you loved it. You loved the way it looked. You loved the characters. You loved the setup. You loved the stories. <laughs> so, <laughs> diegetic sound diegetic sounds of yes. people doing things um, and, and, and I remember when um, I was talking to Russell Davis about <coughs> Doctor Who and he said the big trick about Doctor Who was not what to, um, to add, it was what to keep the same and what to, what to leave unchanged and so he made a decision to, um, to keep the TARDIS as an old Victorian police box um, because he he felt that that was what worked, and that was how he remembered. That was his TARDIS. That was the that was the thing he grew up with, and he believed that that idea, that shape, that look, um, would still resonate. And it's really, if you think about it, it would be so yeah, be so easy. I'll just stop for a second. Uh, we just. You can edit, we're letting, you?
1: Yes, we're letting the chatty people go past. I can edit anyway.
0: But yes. Um, yeah, so it, it's, it would be so easy to, um, and I'm sure the conversation would have happened, where someone would have said, maybe we should find a new TARDIS, a sort of a different looking one, something that would speak to a modern audience. Um, and, um, and he didn't. He left it. Ditto the Daleks. I mean, yes, there might be some slight changes, but fundamentally, everything is still the same. And that's quite a... That's quite a decision, because, and then in the context of that, you can flip it and say, okay, Ron Moore made a very big decision to take out the iconic um, Cylons and make them look like us. Yeah. So both sides are brave. Both sides are a courageous, creative decision. One to keep something the same, even though it could look antiquated, and the other to make a change, even though it could be taking away something iconic. I think
1: what galls me sometimes is a as a big science fiction literature nerd, is some of the people who've done the best job in bringing science fiction to life aren't necessarily big fans of the source material. I always yeah. think that's really interesting. So Tony Gilroy, who, did, um, who took over, I think, writing... Did he direct some of it as well? I'm not sure, I can check. But Rogue One, which is that sort of Star Wars reboot. He's not really, as he has said, he's not really a Star Wars fan. Mm. He's not particularly bothered about it. He mm. just had a story he wanted to tell, and he was going to use Star Wars settings and props, essentially, to sort of help tell that story. Yeah. I think oh, there's like a, a healthy disrespect in a way, which is quite interesting.
0: George, um, I was very privileged to spend two years working with George Lucas, and George said that he deliberately chose directors beyond himself for the first three Star Wars movies, for Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. He used directors who were not known for science fiction or for fantasy. They were directors steeped in drama, The first was Irving Kirshner, who was actually his tutor at um, USC, but who was a man much more known for character-driven dramas and quite intense films. Um, and, um And he chose Irving because he just thought Irving would shoot it like a drama and he would bring out the best in the characters. And then Richard Marquand was a director known for BBC dramas um, and he had only made, I think, one one film, and it was a World War II thriller. But again, George wanted a director who wasn't interested in servicing fandom.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's always an interesting thing. It's like how... Sometimes felt like you're not a big enough fan of the property to write for it. So I think sometimes people go, oh, you're not a big enough Doctor Who fan. That person hasn't written any science fiction at all. Why are they writing Doctor Who? And you think, well, first of all, you're looking at their cv which only has stuff that's been made We might have written one million fantastic science fiction sort of mm. scripts but also
0: it doesn't necessarily matter
1: that much you can you can come to these things with a with a properly critical take i think and, and do something really really interesting
0: yeah you can i mean it's funny as a personal experience when i wrote the first doctor who story i wrote this story called fear her and it was very popular with children because it was aimed at children I'm not saying Doctor Who is exclusively aimed at children, but my episode's brief from Russell was write something for the children, the younger ones, because I've, I'm doing quite a lot of dark stuff with the Cybermen after you, so I need something oh, that is thing. kind of more for the kids. So, And also, <laughs> the other brief I had was we ain't got any money. We've used <laughs> all the money up, <laughs> yeah. and Russell's keeping some for some Cybermen action, um, in his two-parter so I had basically some people had CGI spaceships I had two grips on set and a wardrobe and a red light and that was basically what I had um, so and, 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 and when I wrote the story it was very popular with the kids that I wrote it for um, But it wasn't very popular with the Star Wars older hardcore You know fans they, they didn't like it. They said it wasn't proper doctor who and that I wasn't right to write on Doctor Who because I clearly didn't understand what Doctor Who was. And it was a difficult one to argue because on the one hand, I sort of, I understand fandom. I I get it, you know, I'm a Star Wars fan. I would would be annoyed if I felt someone was doing Star Wars who didn't understand Star Wars. Um, So I do understand and appreciate that perspective. But I think, just as you were saying, James, my response to that was always to say, well, look, you know, first of all, it is, the point of a show like Doctor Who, the reason it l- lasted for so long, has lasted for so long, is it's elastic. It can be moved into different shapes for the time, for the political time, for the for generations. Um, it's not the same story every week. It's not the sa- even the same type of story every week. And, um, and that was why, that was my version. That was my take on a Doctor Who story, given parameters that were preset by others. Um, and... You know, someone else will come along and do a different, a different story that might be extremely fun for you guys, but might completely baffle and bore a seven-year-old. Yeah. So you sort of have to go. That's why, why Doctor Who is great science fiction because it always raises interesting ideas and it puts forward great science fiction notions. It? But it's really elastic. You can really pull it around. You can make it a ghost story one week. You can make it Independence Day another week. You can make it. Um, Et another way. You, you can do all sorts of things with it. I think there's one thing I love about Doctor Who is that so many TV
1: shows have a sort of set band of you know you you know roughly what to expect. So so justified is one of my favourite shows. Everything it, it's scale of one to ten, one being hilarious and ten being is astonishing. Tell you you just see like one episode a couple of years something of that quality. It was always between very occasionally seven. It was mostly between eight and nine stretching a ten yeah. and other shows will be sort of uh, make two maybe i'll go as high as a six a doctor who is like one will meet one next week ten <laughs> next week three next week seven <laughs> next week eight and this is no yeah and that's what's just so great about it because <laughs> you just think i have absolutely no idea just in terms of like enjoyability what it's going to be next week you just you just can't tell and it's great uh, we're talking in the way here i did my worst pitch ever for a doctor who which was uh, season 8, was that the first Peter Capaldi one? Okay. So he'd appeared, yeah. he'd appeared in, the, in the TARDIS when he had the 13 TARDISes uh, circling uh, Gallifrey. It was a pair of eyes. He was wasn't a pair of eyes. Grumpy with the eyebrows as well, as yeah. so you can tell. And, uh, and they wanted writers. I think they had something like 16 writers. I think there were four episodes that weren't written by Stephen Moffat or uh, Mark Gattis, and they had like 16 writers going for four episodes. So I had to go and pitch, and I just did this terrible, everything you're not supposed to do. Because hmm. I went in and sat down, and I said, right, so tell us your idea. And I was like, oh. <laughs> For some reason, it hadn't occurred to me they might do that <laughs> from like beginning to end. I was like, oh, no, I didn't really think about that. So I just was like, oh, and then the thing happens, and then another thing happens. Oh. And then there's like an octopus thing. Oh. And then the thing happens. Oh, well, I like the octopus and then thing. And I think the octopus thing, is great. And I thought, I thought I'd nailed it, the octopus thing. Yeah. And then I had to go, oh no, I forgot the thing at the beginning, so <laughs> you could just see, you could <laughs> oh, see the, the light dying. You never want to hear come out of oh, your own mouth during no. a pitch. Oh, sorry, I've missed oh, a bit. Oh, I missed a bit, yeah. Go and right. then my voice was like, my voice was drying up. Oh, and, then, no. and it was so, it felt weirdly enough, <laughs> I did get onto the next stage, so I don't think it was the end of the world. But I was like, oh, this is a terrible, this is a terrible moment. <laughs> just like trying to pitch
0: something and then going. Well, speaking about Doctor oh. Who pitches, I never really... I, 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 I never really had to pitch from a standing start, so I'm sympathetic to that. I, um, with with Fearher I, I, I sit and had dinner with Russell in Manchester and he basically said, I'd like to do something for children and I think it might be set in a nuclear bunker and I said oh can I not write something set in a nuclear <laughs> bunker please, because I just, I just find that sounds boring and he went okay fine so then i came up with a story so i suppose i did come up with a story from scratch but i sort of pitched him something over over dinner to do with paintings and kids being trapped inside paintings Ooh. And that was really all I pitched. Classic and he, spooky 70s. Classic spooky 70s, really, isn't it? And, yeah. and then he said, okay, that's great, so run off and, you know, do some, do some. And I said, oh, do you want a treatment? And he went, "Would well, you want to write a treatment? <laughs> and I said, no. God, no. And he said, no, well, I don't want to read oh, one. Oh, man, what a <laughs> So with, with, <laughs> with Stephen, I went to spent sort of a morning at Stephen's house, and we had, had coffee and sandwiches and cheese sandwiches, I remember. Mm. Coffee and cheese sandwiches, and we sat at his kitchen table, and he said, I want to do something with m- some kind of beings who are made out of the stuff that eyeballs are made of. Ooh. The same white stuff with little thin veins through them. Um, and, and I said, OK, what do they do? And he said, well, I don't know, but I think <laughs> they can change shape into anything. And I said, well, what if what if that, what if they were changing into doing dangerous jobs? So, that, so basically a miner goes down a mine. And they do some stuff, but then when it gets really dangerous, they can make the eyeball stuff into uh, an exact replica of them, put their brains into the exact replica of them. And then that replica, that doppelganger of them, can go off and actually do the work. And he said, oh, I like that. And then then from that, we just concocted Uh a little idea that maybe some kind of Frankenstein experiment went wrong and there was an electrical storm and the doppelganger suddenly took on the personalities of the... The, the people they were copying. A wits, have uh, gone. sorry, no? And then, well, and, and, well, then they just said, okay, we want life, we want to stay alive. We don't want to go back into yeah. the eyeball machine and be all turned back <laughs> into goose <laughs> again. Yeah, yeah, you're on there, sir.
1: And um, that ties into a question. So David Maguire uh, had a question, which is, he was thinking of the Gangas episode particularly. When you're writing a script and you have a character whose identity is hidden, so you think it's the Doctor, later on you realise it's not the Doctor, it was someone else. How clear do you make that in the script? Do you say in the script, the doctor, brackets, not the real one, obviously, close brackets, or...
0: Yeah, I remember, actually, I wrote some stage directions at one point where I had to say something like, okay, so the doctor runs towards the other doctor. This is the ganga doctor who we currently think is the real doctor. The, the real doctor we currently think is the ganger doctor. And then I took a couple of beats down and went, is anyone confused? Because I am. <laughs> and when we got to the read-through, Russell... Russell, bless him. Not Russell. Russell was gone. He gone. Stephen, the agent Moffit. Stephen the, killed the, Russell. And he said he did. So the moth is doing all the stage directions, reading stage directions at the read-through. And very sweetly, Stephen brilliantly read those stage directions and went, is anyone else confused? Because I am. And then we carried on. So I actually wrote that <laughs> in the script. So yes. Uh, uh, nice. I think the, the important thing to stress here is that when you're writing a script, you are trying to communicate the story not to a reader who's going to then put it on a shelf it's not the book it is a document a working document and it is very important that you communicate to directors to actors to producers and to um, heads of department across the crew what it is they're trying to do and if you try and be too clever and too tricksy with your writing of your of your stage directions in other words if you try and make it too much like an audience adventure they're experiencing as readers what the audience will experience you are in danger obviously you can make a very entertaining script like that but you are in danger of confusing them and there's a great example a famous example russell um getting all my names confused again andrew davis the other welsh davis Davis. andrew davis did an adaptation of one of those great historical novels and he had two a scene with two suitors were turning up at a country house to woo a lady One was an impoverished pastor and the other was a wealthy aristocratic um, soldier and he basically had got bored of describing people galloping up on horses or arriving in carts and so to describe the way these two men arrived and the differences between them he said the pastor basically turns up in a battered up mini metro and the captain turns up in a Ferrari on the day of filming a mini metro and a ferrari had been provided by props fantastic that is excellent work by props it's excellent work by props but a great case in point <laughs> don't be careful with yeah. metaphor it's funny
1: i also i because i read um i read more american scripts lately and they're so chatty they're very yeah. um they're very different style i i look, i think it's probably cuz i write a lot of comedy as well. I always want to be very stripped down on the page so there's no misunderstandings. And so yeah, it's, it's interesting just seeing this sort of different style that you get sometimes from the States.
0: And this it absolutely thing. is. I mean, I, I mean, I'm a great believer that people want to have a good read. They want to, you know, uh, um, if you ever read um, uh, Harold Pinter's adaptation of Remains of the Day, which I think is a beautiful film and it's a wonderful script, but it's not a very enjoyable. Um, it's not a very enjoyable read as a script. It's surprisingly bland. The dialogue is all there, obviously, but the stage directions are non-existent. He doesn't set the scene. He doesn't set mood. He literally says, "Interior kitchen." Um, Anthony Hopkins enters. Oh. That's it. It's nuts like, and bolts. Nuts and bolts. So um, he's not even trying to direct your eye. Whereas when I write a script. I'm I'm I I am part director unfortunately for directors and I and I'm always trying to steer Your eye in the script towards what I think you would see if you were watching it all finished and shot. Well, there is a thing of people saying don't direct on the page. Yeah,
1: but I mean, okay, I'm not going to use pan because I'm never sure if that's up and down or left or right. But mm-hmm. you know, I will use close up and extreme close up and we see, you know, and, and cut twos. Yeah, and a lot like of that. writers do, you
0: know. And a lot of writers do. And I think the most important thing is to write how, 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 the, in a way that excites you, that conveys what you're trying to convey. Yeah. And have the argument later about whether or not you've overdone it for the director. I've never had a director yet come to me in 30 years. I've never had a director come to me and say, you've written this too prescriptively for me. Not, not. I mean, I had no, one good. situation where I was, funnily enough, I was adapting a science fiction novel for a director called Doug Lyman. Doug Lyman directed... The um, Born. Man. Of, yes, yeah. the first Born film. He directed The Edge of Tomorrow with um, Emily Blunt and Tom Cruise. A very, very talented, and I'm sure everyone would agree, a very visual director. And I did this big treatment for him which I got carried away about describing the action and all this. And he sat down with me and he said, uh, don't do that when you're doing the script. I don't want to see any action. Ooh. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I do that. That's what I do. I, oh, I, right. I provide all the whiz bangs. And I said, yeah, I get that, but I don't know how to tell the story. Yeah, you need to get from A to B. Yeah. To an extent. Oh. And Did you work it out? He seemed quite disappointed. Uh, it didn't work out. Oh, it didn't okay. work out. I, I, didn't get beyond the treatment stage. Oh, that's um, quite odd, isn't it? Yeah. I mean he moved on. He moved on to something else, and that yeah. was the end of it. It wasn't, I don't think we fell out over it. It was just. But it was curious that he was, he didn't want me. I said, but even if you change it all, that's fine. Yeah. I still want to convey the story. Well, exactly, yeah, just cross it out once I've given
1: it to you. That's yeah. alright. You get that in animation as well sometimes. It's like I it's kids telly. But sometimes some animators like. Some directors are like, well. The Character walked into a room, and they go, Well, I want to, how did you get there? I want to know what's his walk like. Is he bouncy or what? So sometimes you'll put that in, and then another director will go, I'm the director, just but he walks into the room. And they all think that however they do it is the only way that it's done, <laughs> which can be a bit ah. Now, I was going to cut through some interesting, tragic. I was going to cut through the door here, but it turns out the door is in fact shut. Okay. So so we're going to go down to the King Harry Ferry, which all is right. very nice, oh, we'll just, and then we we'll just walk up the hill. Yeah, sounds yeah good. Pretty, it's totally doable. Well, uh, well uh, people with the dogs go down.
0: Oh. So oh. yeah. Um, so uh, one of the big, um, probably the biggest science fiction job I did was adapting Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood's End, which was the first, um, the first, or well, the first I think the first novel he wrote. Certainly the first published novel that was a big hit for him, um, and. It is, I won't, I won't um, go into the, huge, sort of the this huge sweep of the story, but I will say this. When I was approached to do it, it was very clear to me that there was a two-part structure to it. Uh, and I was asked to do it as two parts, 290 minutes, and I thought that's great. There's very clearly a whole episode about these alien beings arriving on Earth, and making mankind infinitely safer and healthier and happier but the one mystery is they refuse to reveal what they look like because in their words you wouldn't be able to accept our appearance which is obviously a wonderful oh, yeah. mystery yeah and the the first part ends after the, the they're called the overlords after the overlords have been with us for uh, 20 years and finally they decide that we are advanced enough to be able to handle what they look like. And they appear down the ramp and, okay, cover your eyes on your ears, fire apart, rather now if you don't want to hear, but they look like the devil. They look like Satan, the exact replica of Satan. Horns, Mm. red, poofs, the whole thing you can see why they were (laughs) reluctant. uh, Yes, and Arthur C. Clarke has this wonderful philosophy behind it that they visited us when we were in our infancy as as a species, and we were frightened of them, and therefore we created demonic and dark forces to look like them. So, but they themselves are benevolent. And then the second half of the story is basically about their plan, their plan for the the world and how they changed the world and how they eventually, um Bring the world to its sort of conclusion, its zenith. Really simple two-parter. Here was the problem: the Sci-Fi Channel. Oh, I'm gonna cut for a second. Yeah, hang on. It's just too complicated <laughs> <laughs> well We could walk up. we Need hang to on. find somewhere to go, don't we? Yeah, let's. On. Well, let's. Sorry. Uh, do you want to? We're dithering. We're... Oh, we're dithering. I could get encoded when you dither. You, you stop. The second half of the story um is basically the Overlord's plan for bringing the Earth to this very sad bittersweet conclusion very beautiful but very sad very clearly two parts the problem was that the sci-fi channel that I was writing it for and they are called the sci-fi channel I'm sure you've heard of them um, they said to me we want it as 390 minutes and I just didn't know what the middle they loved the first part they loved the the third part they wanted a middle part um, and I was left with a big conundrum so I started trawling through the book and I discovered this sort of one paragraph that began, eventually the overlords persuaded humans to do away with religion. <laughs> and it kind of... Aha! <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> it kind of... Clark sort of just said, that's it and I'm done. Yeah. Um, I decided that was a whole 90-minute story that I could see working. So I opened it up and created my own storyline, which was a bit of a, a, bit of a brave departure because I was literally no. taking a classic beloved um book that science fiction aficionados regarded as a classic and I was inventing a whole hour and a half of drama that wasn't in the book but it was inspired by the book so that was a bit of a risk yeah. um, but it was something I felt I kind of had to do it because I was having to fit in with a commercial imperative a commercial yeah. uh, a need for a three-parter. Did you think about pushing back against that, going, no, it's a two-part story? Did you go, well, that's what they want? No, I did, I did. I had a conversation with them about it, and I said, I I think it might be better if we kept it as the two parts. But once I told them about the paragraph about religion, (laughs) they got very excited Uh, and said, that's an amazing story. And they went wrong. That's it, yeah, it's a good way in, isn't it? So how do you you feel about it afterwards? I'm really proud of it. Um, I'm really proud of it, it, and I think it created one of the best scenes in the story, um, that as I've seen of all places, that took place in a country barn between Charles Dance as Karell and the leader of the Overlords, or, or the, at least the director for Earth, as he was called, uh, and a young farm hand called Ricky. I mean, I made lots of other changes as well. I mean, one of the things about science fiction novels, particularly classic science fiction, is they their protagonists are often scientists and politicians, and this very much comes from a time when we sort of unquestioningly regarded our world leaders as the finest minds and the greatest humanitarians. We just assumed that if you were the leader of the United Nations you were therefore a good person. Capable, competent. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. We live in a much more cynical age now, and rightly so. And so, one of the things you often do when you look at a science fiction novel is you say, well, how can I make this more blue collar? How can I maybe take away some of the the highfalutiness of it. There's a
1: sensible chaps element to a lot of that sort of older, like 70s, 80s kind of science fiction, I feel, isn't there? It's like sensible chaps dealing with a problem. And you think that's not, yes. <laughs> not necessarily going to be that entertaining to watch? I think that's right. <laughs> yeah,
0: Can you try and get a
1: past a of past? Of Yeah, it could <laughs> I, I wouldn't have got any higher, so I'm happy. I think he could try another cell. Like so it was um also childhood's end maybe that was the one where you moved up you went from writer to showrunner was well, wasn't it? <laughs> I yes, it was. Yeah. Yes,
0: it was. So um, maybe it's about that a bit because that's quite interesting. It was totally thrown into the deep end because we were filming in Australia and there wasn't a showrunner I was out there as um, just the writer. I was there to um, basically just watch and then fly home one let them carry on filming. But um They realized they didn't have a creative, they had a director, um, and they had a producer who was a brilliant producer, but he was a very nuts and bolts producer. And the studio and the network felt it was just important to keep me on, um, to keep an overview, to make sure that the scripts were made the way everyone wanted them to be made. Um, And so I was suddenly thrust into this role of showrunner, which was Mm. an extremely exciting, but I have to say very traumatic, uh, twist.
1: Yes, yeah, so in not my... something you actively pursue that uh, I want all the power to make this <laughs> the way
0: I want it. it I wasn't... think I liked the idea of being a showrunner but I, <laughs> I liked the idea of maybe being trained. Yes. Or at least having some some time to get my head around it rather than to literally walk in one day and find that I'd got a different office and they'd upgraded my car and I suddenly had an assistant that I hadn't had before. <laughs> and there was my phone was winking with phone calls and they were the head of the network now needs to speak to you the head of the studio now needs to speak to you mm-hmm. and they all basically said the same thing which is don't you dare fuck this up <laughs> great well let's
1: stop there for a second and we're back here again yeah see what, what i didn't take into account was that when i walk this walk we are like that's right we're back on right some jolly noisy national trust tapes but that's right they have every right.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, so, you know, I mean, it seems now more and more popular to be adapting classic science fiction, and I think that's a wonderful, um, a wonderful thing. They're doing Dune, not only as a movie, but as a, as a TV series, um, and doubtless we'll be getting a lot more. Star Trek, of course, has become even more science fiction, I think, over the, the later iterations with Discovery and with Picard. Um, yes, it's, it's trying stuff out, isn't it? I think, which is
1: which is interesting. Well, I don't always like it, but again, I do like the fact that they're trying stuff.
0: Yes, and w- moving it around. Absolutely. One of the things that people sort of do level at things like Picard is that they say, "Oh, but could not be a bit more? Could it be a bit faster? Could it be a bit more exciting?" And anyway, this is, in a nutshell, the the, the the difficulty of science fiction, which is really good sci-fi is often quite introspective, um, and I think Picard is. It's great drama. I think it's terrific. It's it's really smart. It's very emotional. Patrick Stewart's brilliant. Um, But it is slow. Um, It's a slow burn piece. Um, And I suspect that Apple's very expensive David Goya scripted uh, foundation series will also be a slow burn. Yeah. Um, Albeit one, I hope, that is very, you know, very beautiful and haunting and interesting. I think what so what, uh, what shows do you think in the last few years have, have really nailed it, science fiction wise? Um, I think I mean okay, going back in, I think Star Trek does. I think Star, but of course Star Trek has a lot to d- draw upon, a lot of history to draw upon. This is Star Trek Destiny, though. So Star, Star Trek one? Discovery. Discovery, sorry, yes.
1: Destiny. It's got making up a series. Yes, hell, <laughs> it's quite right good though. I'll pitch that idea. I'd yeah, that. Star yeah. Trek Destiny. Star Trek Destiny.
0: Destiny. Um, let me think. Um, I mean, I, I I regard Black Mirror as science fiction. Oh yes, um, and I think Black Mirror is incredibly smart. I mean, it just it's just it's really really clever. Um, I think The Dark on Netflix. Oh, is German, that the German one? Yes, yeah. I haven't watched that yet. I'm it's that a again. kind of it's a kind of dark version of Back to the Future, really. Um, I would I would uh, I would definitely um, recommend that one. What about I, you? What do you enjoy? Uh, I
1: did enjoy those first couple of seasons of Westworld. I really enjoyed mm. um, because it had this sort of, it was exciting but it had this sort of thoughtful pace to it as well. Yeah. And it also had this sort of playful quality, like the covers, like the honky-tonk covers of various of Black Hole Sun and stuff like that. <laughs> thought, oh, there's just this sort of playfulness that I really, really, I very much enjoy there. Yeah. And um, well, oddly enough, Legion, which is more a sort of superhero show, right. but it was kind of asking yeah. science fiction questions. Yes, it was. Like, what does it do to your brain when you have this incredible level of power? That was an astonishing show. Really well put together. The first, first two seasons of that which Slightly
0: just... got away from me, that show. Yeah,
1: happened, a, lot of, a lot of things. I think it's all right to have two good seasons, and then you can, you know, just just, just watch those. It's absolutely fine. But uh, yeah, that was good. Cool. I do wonder if, why there's a bit of a renaissance of science fiction shows, or at least money for them, it's because the, a lot of these streaming services at the very top level you've got kind of like Steve Bezos and people who are massive nerds and they're willing to mm. you, you kind of know that they're, they're happy to spend like a billion pounds on the Lord of the Rings TV series and stuff like that I do think
0: oh, that's interesting and that's true actually a- Emma um, Frost and I were for a while uh, developing Snow Crash the Neil Stevenson seminal Neil Stevenson novel from the 90s um, in which he kind of created the idea of Cyber avatars, really. I mean, sort of, he was sort of the guy who kind of pioneered that th- way of thinking that you could have a, an avatar version, a second life inside a computer. Um, and it's a mind bending book that it covers everything from internet porn to Sumerian deification. Um, and um, didn't think I was going to say that. That's did a you? sentence, wasn't it? That is well, a sentence. Um, yeah. Um, and, you know, Emma and I were developing that with um, the amazing uh, Frank Marshall. Um, producing and um, the reason that was happening was because at the time the head of drama at um, president for production and drama at uh, Amazon was Roy Price a guy called Roy Price and he was a huge Snow Crash fan oh, nice. so you're absolutely right That's all
1: sensible people are all sensible I people think are. I made this really sad little noise when you said you were developing that like a sort of oh <laughs> oh I love that book
0: oh. <laughs> well it, we, it didn't it didn't happen at Amazon and, um, and and there was a oh there was also a wonderful um, Joe Cornish was um uh, developing it with us, and he was going to direct the pilot, and may still do because I believe it's still in some. It's iteration. still ticking over, apparently. It's still yeah. ticking over so you know,
1: these things just suddenly reappear,
0: which is always interesting. Yeah. Oh, boy! Oh, it's a bit fresh air. That lovely. Um, yes, we've, we've uh, found ourselves in a quieter spot now, we, as it's been extremely noisy and full of people with the audacity to come out for a walk on a Sunday afternoon. Some of them, I think, probably weren't even podcast listeners. I, I'm not think? sure they were regular listeners. Oh. I really don't. It's, oh. it's I know. It's, it's I thought this was exclusively podcast I, area. It would be good, wouldn't it? it? Would be nice. So um, yeah. So okay. So science fiction, we've sort of established, is is a very tricky um, is a very tricky uh, genre to adapt. Um, and I think it's one that also does require IP. One of, the, one, of the, um, one of the key defining features of science fiction is that it alienates the, um, the networks almost instinctively, because yeah. they immediately go, oh And it's expensive. It's expensive, it's going to be for geeks, and everyone else isn't going to watch it, and we're not going to get a core, our core demographic will be too small. And that's why they desperately need ip so i would say to people who are thinking of writing spec um, science fiction i would say go with god but use it more likely use it as a calling card for your talents rather than as a project you truly believe is going to be bought and made i think i've got two uh
1: quotes kind of burned into my brain from um from quite high up british drama execs and one was Oh, it's just, I was talking to head of a, a broad drama, broadcasting bit, Pleasant, who they had some big new sort of genre show out. And they said, well, What do you think? And I said, Well, I, you know, I. I'm very excited about it. I hadn't seen it I'm very excited about it and she went yeah the thing is all the nerds will watch it and no one else will and it costs a fortune
0: oh there <laughs> you I go thought,
1: oh okay well that's I thought, also I didn't want to say probably possibly not all the nerds will watch it because you know <laughs> yeah, we are quite discerning we, we'll probably watch the first episode of absolutely everything
0: but, you, know, <laughs> you then, take that you, you one sliver of hope yeah, away from I'm it I'm sorry I didn't want to say
1: that no. <laughs> and the other thing was great was this um, uh, science fiction series which was on a, a series about colonising another planet which was on I think I think it was BBC a few years ago and um the head of uh, be very careful what i say now a high up exec was kind of pitching it uh, to the big american thing and so we've got this new series coming up um it's about colonizing another planet it's got spaceships in but don't worry it's not science fiction
0: <laughs> like, yes
1: it is how is it not science? just yeah. i mean yeah it's got spaceships okay and the planet that's that's that is science fiction and i think i just i think what he meant was not silly I think because it was very serious. It was actually quite boring show, unfortunately. But it was, it, I think the whole sense was, don't panic, it's not silly. This is, this is a grown-up show, and therefore it can't be science
0: fiction. No, you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't with science fiction, because um, notice how we're both consciously avoiding saying sci-fi. Yes. Um, but we are. Uh, it, it, with, S, with SF, um, <laughs> basically, if you go the let's make it fun and daft and just crazy route, you're probably going to make potentially a very entertaining show that will not be taken remotely seriously as serious science fiction and um, if you make a show that is serious science fiction you probably will end up with a show that alienates a large percentage of the audience um, and just really confounds them so it, it's a very very tricky line that one treads because it is absolutely true that there are a lot of people that go, oh, no, spaceships equal silly in my book. Don't know why. I don't know why spaceships are inherently silly. I don't think NASA regarded spaceships as silly. Um, but some people do think spaceships are silly. And, um, and therefore, if you kind of overcompensate and go, OK, don't worry, it's not going to be remotely entertaining. <laughs> it's going <laughs> yes. to be very serious, and it could happen anyway. I, I mean, I, I was pitched a, a science fiction show um, once upon a time, and they said, "Oh, it, you know, it it basically takes place on another planet, but a bit like your your thing of it." But don't worry. But they said it isn't science fiction, and we're not going to embrace science fiction ideas. In fact, it didn't even have to be. It would. It doesn't even have to be on another planet. And then I said, "Well, then, why are you setting it on another planet? <laughs> yeah, why not just set it?" in, in real, Yes. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, you are damned if you do and damned if you don't. But, 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 but also, you've got to sort of remember where, where the streamers, for example, are coming from. The streamers don't mind spending large amounts of money on shows not that many people watch. Because what they're actually trying to do is make noise. They're trying to get big stars, like let's say they want a big science fiction show starring Michael Fassbender. Um, and it's the episode. It's going to be created by J.J. Abrams, and it's going to make a huge amount of noise. and with be big billboards everywhere, and it doesn't matter if. It, I mean, hopefully, a lot of people would watch it, but it doesn't matter if they don't because you're driving up subscription. Yeah. More people are going to go. Oh, I must get Netflix, you know, because I did like Michael Fassbender and that other thing, and and he's good, and J.J. Abrams is good, and we must get that. That will do. I'll That'll sign up to it. I'll and sign that's up. To job it. done in a way before it's even gone out. Exactly. It you know, it's job done. It? So so. So, you know, there is still... And also, the very big hitters in Hollywood are still drawn to sci-fi. Um, you know, J.J. Abrams, Jordan Peele, um, uh, Christopher Nolan. We haven't even talked about Nolan. See, Nolan's really, at least in television... Um, in, sorry, in movies, Nolan has really found a way of making accessible science fiction that's truly a story of ideas. And it is, yes. It's all about
1: ideas. Also, something. sorry, I'm jumping in. Something I was thinking. Having I, I'm worried, I've been uh, dissing senior drama execs. and I will come back. Not not just my career, but also <laughs> when you you sometimes you pitch a thing. But you further down the packing packing order, you pitch a thing and they get and you just go, oh, they don't. They didn't like it. They obviously hate science fiction. Then later on, you get to know these people as human beings, and you go, oh god, they really know their stuff. <laughs> they are they are fans of science fiction. Amongst other things, it's not that they, it's not that they instinctively didn't want to make it because it, it, they thought it was silly they just didn't think they could justify the expense of yeah I and think putting that's, and oh, no, that's, I think that's true it and
0: it goes the other way I mean I'm not you asked me at the start of all of this if um, life on Mars was science fiction let's just suppose for a second that it, it is or it has a, it has its elements in science fiction um, you know pitching that to um, uh, to Jane Tranter and Julie Gardner when they were running the BBC drama um, uh, department uh, it wasn't that was it to them it was a no brainer we pitched it with a script we developed the script elsewhere we brought them the script Julie read it uh, anyone who knows Julie Gardner will know that her reactions are always zero or a thousand <laughs> and she had this big thousand reaction and showed it immediately to Jane Tranter and the thing was green lit in about 2 weeks mm. um and um and the funny thing was it was the other time travel show because they'd already green-lit Doctor Who. You would think at that point they'd be like, you know what, we've got a time travel <laughs> kind of show.
1: Well, we'll we do need the a second one. That's that's the interesting thing with British television as well actually, we're going to be parochial now, is I find, because um, the ecosystem is quite small in British telly, if you're pitching something that isn't doctors or cops, if it's, uh, you know, if you think it's loosely vampires, so there's always going to be a loose vampire... Loo- they're very loose, loose, they're quite loose, loose vampires, Because vampire. most vampires are quite <laughs> loose. But they'll always go, oh, there's another, there's another vampire show Sky doing, or there's, there's always someone developing some vague thing which sounds yeah. a bit like whatever you're doing, if it's not doctors or yeah. doctors or cops, and that, that's quite hard to get past. I think, though, I'm not sure
0: it's a huge problem, because, you know, eventually you'll get like a champion for your show or something. No, but if you look back at the history of British television, and I mean domestic British television uh, rather than anything to do with streamers or cable, you will see that scattered throughout is uh, science fiction. I actually, my very first original piece for television was called The Last Train, which was back in 1999. I love that. <laughs> we must,
1: I, sh- I like to shout, we must find Ark every now and, we and then. Must Who I'm not sure even remembers. <laughs> that was a
0: line from the show, but I like to shout Probably too. a line I gave to Nicola Walker. Was oh, it was definitely a Nicola Walker line. Yeah. Yes, she said it beautifully. Bless her. Um, and so that was made for Granada Television. And of course, Granada were in the middle of their, they were, I mean, Granada were in a great place in the late 90s. They had Cracker, they had Band of Gold. I mean, these guys were knocking it out of the park with some really big, dark, uh, prime suspect. You know, massive stuff. Um, and then I come along with, a, let's redo The Survivors in Sheffield. Um, and Nick Elliott, the head of drama, who absolutely... I mean, he, Nick is the furthest removed from science fiction that you will ever get. But I love Nick, and he, he was brilliant exec. Because he just looked at me and he went, oh, God. He said, so, what, so are they really, like, in the future? And I said, well, they've been frozen. And they've been frozen. Right? What do you all think? Right. He went, all right, then. Go on, then. You can have six. You can have six. <laughs> And, and that was it and we went off and made and we were completely left alone I never had any notes oh, we just went off with Ceta Williams and Simon Lewis and, and Sue Hogg we, we were the four of us and we went off and we made the six part drama about an asteroid hitting Sheffield um, and loved it we just had a lovely time loved it I really enjoyed that it was great thank you
1: well it also it had one of those things that so, oh, science science fiction tell you can just throw up some images that just stay with you. It was the bit with the I think all the cars that had um it's is like car roofs just sticking above the ground. Yes, There's, and just like oh, and you just and part of your brain goes, yeah, no, that's someone's sawn off. The prop people are just sawn off, some car roofs <laughs> and stuck them on the ground. Yeah, but your brain fills in the gaps. Yeah, because, oh my god, they've been there for so long. Grounds <laughs> ground up around, and that's just one of those few images that, that just stuck in my brain forever.
0: Well, you know, of course, no one was doing that, but no one was actually doing that sort of stuff at that time. So we, we kind of I think I think the truth was it was just a novelty for ITV and for, for Nick Elliott to do something where he went, oh, I'm also doing amongst all these medical. Dramas and cop shows. I'm also doing this thing about some people get frozen on the 4:15 to Sheffield. We've got the range, darling. We've got the range. <laughs> We've got the range. Um, <laughs> yeah, God bless Nick. Nick. He uh, he was he was really one of the uh, one of the one of the special ones. I think that
1: is a nice when you when you click with someone with an idea and the person isn't a massive nerd. Mm. And that's when you click with a quite a sort of science fiction or fancy idea and the person goes, Oh yeah, I like that. And they're not a nerd. That, that's, that's a really nice moment, because you feel like you've cut through. Yes, it's and that's quite exciting, isn't it? Yeah, and you go, oh, well, someone's willing to go with me at least, which is quite good. I was going to ask you, what... Not if you have unlimited budget, necessarily, because that's not helpful, but what... Is there, like, an adaptation you love
0: to do that no one's ever approached you for, or... Um, I don't... Like I, I, I'm not sure... It, as such, there's... Um, I mean, I, I was... Um, there's not a particular book... Uh, I mean, other than I always had a hankering to do foundation... Yeah. Um, and, and then I, I, I read that they were doing it. Um, and so I'll just enjoy watching that one. Um, I, um, did I have a hankering for a particular thing? No, except the genre that I still am not done with is time travel. Oh. I actually think time travel should be a genre in and of itself. Um, and I think that so many stories can be told through the prism of time travel that don't require spaceships or flying cars or monsters. There's a there's a there's a film that I'm in conversation with a company to um, to make to to write this movie, and it's um, it's a time travel story, but where the time we're not talking about jumping around in hundreds of years, and it's a really cool idea. It's actually based on a French um, film. And um, I, I won't say too much more at the moment because I haven't got the job. Yeah, but no, no. Um, <laughs> also no spoilers. So this... No spoilers. But it's uh, it's a very cool time travel idea. So I'm I'm definitely not done with time travel. And of mm. course I am developing Lazarus with Ashley Pharaoh, which is oh, the yes. third and final part of Life on Mars, which probably is the part that will go most into the science fiction, stroke, fantasy, meta, meta thing. Yes, yeah. because it, yeah, it more so even than Ashes and and yeah, on Mars. Yeah. Well it feels like you've done two. Do a trilogy. Haha. And also I've done that thing of leave them wanting more for a decade or so <laughs> and then bring them all back when they're old. Yeah, exactly. They not have nothing else to do. Bring the oldies back. Yeah, let's have an old <laughs> we had an old Harrison Ford, let's yeah. have an old Philip Glenister. <laughs> Tottering around. <laughs> <laughs> we'll all be getting up going,
1: <laughs> oh back. Oh, 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 oh it's that time.
0: Oh. Oh we've got the wind blowing. Magnificent view though, oh, this is uh, listeners. I should probably take a photo. In fact,
1: I might, I'm gonna stop now and take a photo, and then I can put it in the thing. So, and then I'll, hang on, start again. Oh yeah.
0: It's a great view,
1: isn't it? It is lovely.
0: So that's the, I'm trying to work out now.
1: Okay, I've taken my photo. You're <laughs> both taking photos
0: now, James. Yes. Um, I, I, okay. Uh, in, of the two of us, I've probably had the more experience of adapting science fiction, but you're certainly very steeped in what I would call the sort of the cousin of science fiction, which is the graphic novel and the comic. Yes. Um, because they raise exactly. philosophical questions all the time um, uh, through the and through the through the medium of not just superheroes, but through through their ideas and their format. So. so What do you feel is the, so I mean obviously without doubt it's one of the most adapted genres now in in movies and, and in television. Do you think there's a difference? Do you think there's clear water between science fiction and comics, and um, how do you see it? Oh no, yeah. I mean, comics is just a medium,
1: isn't it? Mm. So you could do anything. You know, you could do detect a detective story or a um, or romance. There's not enough romance comics. I want more romance comics. I romance yeah, comic. yeah, oh, well, that romance, romance or comics. Yeah, pornography. Oh no. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's if it's the same. That's a very sad statement. It is. It? <laughs> that's awful. That's an awful <laughs> thing to say. <laughs> I don't say. understand. I do different... understand. What we saying is you made lots of money, and I read a lot of comics. But <laughs> I, it, comic, yeah, it's a in, really interesting area. Also, uh, something that was, uh, something that I don't think it's still happening, you might know this, is that people were writing, pitch- writing scripts that weren't really happening. Then they'd quietly go and commission someone to actually make a comic of it. Oh. Then they go into meetings going, we've got this amazing, indie, What's- below the radio, black and white comic, and look, I've adapted it into a script. Oh. It's very much putting the cart before the horse. And I think uh, there's, I, I know of a couple of quite
0: big films where that's happened. Wow, that's so cool. So it's, a, it's a, I think, good for them for doing it,
1: frankly. It's, no, that's, that's really great. I
0: mean, someone did tell me once, if you want to make a TV show, and you're trying to get into television, don't write a TV show, write a novel, yeah. and, get it, and get it bought, an option. Yeah, I, mean, this, I, there's, there's, I,
1: think, I think I was saying at the beginning, there's a couple of things that people say, oh, if this was based on the book, I would have at least taken a punt on it. Yeah. Um, yeah, the difficulty is that a lot of the, the rights to comic books have just gone, especially British, um, if you grew up with 2000 AD and things like that, they're all owned by one big company who, I think, understandably, are, are sitting on them because they think they're going to be the next Marvel, and they might be. But um, it's, it's very hard. Uh, it's, so you've either got the big properties have already gone on all the little ones. Sometimes they're, frankly, a bit crap as well. That's the, right. <laughs> that's okay. the issue. They're no likely to be better stories just because they're kind of graphic novels. But, but can I ask, mm. uh,
0: have you ever even speculatively taken a graphic novel that you've loved and adapted it for your own interest? For my own, own. No,
1: there's, there's, there's ones I would. Uh, mm. There is a ridiculous... The, I mean, it's a classic one. Well, there's a 2008 story called uh, Hooligan's Haircut by um, oh God, I can't remember the name of the artist now, oh uh, was Jamie Hewlett who did Gorillaz, he's so, the rights to that I've got. But it's about um, it's about a very sweet little chap called Hooligan Hul- uh, who is insane in an asylum and he, he cuts his hair with a pair of NHS safety scissors and he accidentally creates a sort of fractal haircut. Uh, and, the, and his haircut is so extreme that reality starts to break down around him. <laughs> and then he meets a girl called Scarlett O'Hara and it's completely insane and it's an excuse to draw a load of fantastic nonsense mm. right in the highest possible way. And there's something in that I would love to adapt. But you kind of feel like, well, by the time I've done it, I've put so much work into it. And it's not... <laughs> I may as well, like, take off the haircut and have an original idea. Do you know what I mean? It's, um, yeah, yeah. You feel like there'd be so much well, work but the in it. the so. very
0: nature of these things is they, they can be quite slight, can't they? I mean, yeah. Alan Moore obviously isn't. He's incredibly dense and he's full of ideas and they're so yeah. potent. They, they unfold like... um like they they kind of unfold like that cube in in Hellraiser. You, oh God, yes. You press the right button and the whole thing kind of.
1: Oh, there's some stuff here, isn't there? Yes. yeah. But a lot
0: of them aren't like that, are they?
1: A lot of them aren't. No, and some of them are pulp, and I, in a good way. And I think sometimes pulp, pulp fiction, as in you know, not the film, but actual pulp <laughs> fiction, can make fantastically. Sorry. Oh yeah, of course, yeah. Thank you. That's all right and um, can make sort of fantastic telly, although I was looking back at a lot of British British comics that I used to love and realising they were just complete rip-offs of American things that I didn't know at the time. Uh-huh. So it was like Billy the Kid, and, Billy the Kid, Billy the, um, huh? Billy the Cat, oh, which yeah. was a stripping eagle, which was, and it was just Spider-Man. He just had the abilities of a cat, it was just, it was a cat instead of a spider, but he had like the suit and stuff. And I was going, oh, this is just Spider-Man! <laughs> Hang on, no, I was come, like, now, not come
0: stop you for a second? I don't claim to be a <laughs> biologist or an, um, uh, uh, any kind. You're saying cats and spiders biologist? are different. But cats and spiders have different skills. Well, don't this me? is true,
1: but they're jumping and they're climbing. But I think I think he, he was like a photojournalist in some sort of <laughs> oh, okay. small British Radio, town. Oh, I was bitten
0: by a radioactive, ginger, by a radioactive tom.
1: ginger tom, and he could climb a bit and oh, jump a bit, okay. and uh, and you go. oh... I feel like I'm dissing comics now. That wasn't what I meant to do at all. But um, they are yeah, they're a really interesting resource. It's, it's annoying that they. The rights to so many are sort of being subtle and you can't really do much with them.
0: Do you think the actual style of comics, though, um, does it force one to adapt them in a way that reflects the panel structure of a comic? And and is that a good thing or a bad thing, or does that not even feature? I mean, okay, I'm thinking when Zack Snyder um, directed and wrote and directed The Watchman, he really went out of his it way it was panel by panel it, yes yes, until the end obviously <laughs> until the end it was
1: pretty <laughs> but, uh, much panel by panel yeah and of course the problem with that is you go well I've read the comic okay so just seeing it brought to life are you not a fan of that film just out of interest um, I, li- I liked a lot of it yeah. um, I think it's that interesting thing when you do an adaptation of something that's so close to the book you go, well, like, it's like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, that that was just lovely. It was really great and yeah, I mean, well, totally yeah. respectful of the book. Well,
0: we never even talked about Dougie's No, I mean
1: Dougie's a whole different thing, but, um, but I watched it again, but, but I've read the book <laughs> and I know what's going to happen. Sure. And, and it's, that's, a, that's kind of a weird one. Yeah, no, I think the, probably I don't have, I have a weird sort of almost non-visual imagination and every now and then I get some incredibly strong image. So I don't kind of, I don't necessarily
0: see scripts. I kind of hear them as I'm right. okay. typing them out. Well, okay, now that's an interesting segue. Uh-huh. Well, I'm going to talk about radio. Oh because I also adapted the stone tape" by Nigel Neal, one of the greatest of all science fiction writers. Oh yes. Um, and I adapted his um, BBC play "The Stone Tape," into a radio play, which was directed by Peter Strickland, um, who is a brilliant and hilariously um, doer um, uh, indie filmmaker who I am incredibly fond of. Um, and if you haven't seen any of P- uh, Peter Strickland's films, I'd urge you to see The Duke of Burgundy or Bavarian Sound Studio. Um, oh, yes. They are bonkers and rather wonderful. Um, and, of course, the, here's, the, here's an answer to anybody who says, well, science fiction is incredibly expensive. And, you know, but it's not expensive on the radio. <laughs> yes. Um, and I'd like to see a little more science fiction on the radio. Oh, well, that would be lovely. Um, because... It, it, and that, because there really is no sort of discernible extra risk to be taken on the part of the production. Well, I will say, I mean, Big Finish, are you, you aware of Big Finish? Yeah, Yes, they've been doing a fantastic
1: job for decades. Yes, that's true. Um, it's just, I kind of like to get it more, more kind of mainstream, I guess. But uh, yes, yeah, so I used to work in a factory in Falmouth years ago, and uh, people would order just random stuff from, big, like, Doctor Who. So they do... Um, like I don't, not adaptations, but original like Doctor Who's. They kept Doctor Who going for years when it was off the screen. So they did Doctor Who. They also did like kind of Judge Tread and Warhammer and stuff like that.
0: And can I ask you, do you hmm. know the people at Big Finish and do you think that they look at spec scripts? I mean, people I have no who are, idea. No, because I. Do they. Do you think they ever break out from doing Doctor Who Torchwood? As far as I know, it's I know all nice, um, almost like
1: licensed stuff, but that'd be interesting right. to look into. Yeah. I can only wildly speculate, but yes, I want. It seems, sometimes they do like spin-offs of spin-offs of shows, but it does seem to be kind of nice. I know there's people who just buy every Doctor Who episode, the way they at the factory, they'd, they just pass the tapes around. Which was lovely, it's like sort of currency going around of the latest I love that title, big Django and Lightfoot. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: really? They seem to be Victorian Ooh. detectives in supernatural science fiction. I wonder if they were something oh, nice. connected to Doctor Who in some Ooh. way. Um, yeah, they probably are now, and people are people around the world are going. I told For you. God's that's sake. why Graham shouldn't write. What <laughs> <to who." laughs> he doesn't know anything. Apparently, there's a thing called the Cyber Man. Cyber and man. He's a, he's, a, he's literally a Cyberman, a ah. man made of cyber. He's just 100% cyber. Yeah, yeah, 0% man. It's what they think of oh. becoming like becoming like um, Rob Brydon now in um, Gavin and Stacey. What will they think of next? <laughs> what did I did the other day? <laughs> Daleks, absolutely <Just> brilliant. Crazy. <laughs> <sighs> well we've, we've probably um, we've suddenly exhausted ourselves but I, yes. I doubt we've exhausted the topic of science fiction
1: and we've probably helped nobody <laughs> I feel this is the rambliest of rambles
0: but that's alright but what we um, what we might do in, um, now, in subsequent script rambles is we are it's hoping so to start talking to other people who also do the writing Oh yes, um, and get some of their takes on things um, and um, who knows, maybe we'll even be able to get the man they know as Mr Chibby Chibchibs. Chibo Chibbo? Chibbo. El Chibbo. El Chibbo oh, yeah. himself, maybe we could get him to do a little talk. <laughs> I've never met him, I don't
1: know why I'm being so um, <laughs> oh, you don't have familiar. To. You do now, you know yeah, Mr Chibby Chib Mr
0: Chibby Chibchibs. Um, and we should find some other people to interrogate. Yes. Benignly. Yes. We'll do that. And some ladies. Oh, something for the ladies. Something,
1: <laughs> something for the ladies, yes. I know you have suggested ladies. Cool. I think I might cut all this. <laughs> I might just kind of cut, right, this whole chunk. But, uh, <laughs> I'm sure oh know. man. So we're, we're coming up the uh, very nice uh, sort of stately home. It's like, it's Cornish, so it's a stately home, but it's not that stately. <laughs> 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 and it's sort of homely. It's quite nice. We wouldn't necessarily want to sort of live there. But, uh,
0: okay. Alright, well we've talked a bit about science fiction, the pros yeah. and cons. And we've talked about the challenges. We, yeah. And um, we've probably left you slightly more befuddled than you were before I think, you listened.
1: Yes. I feel like I feel like we were thrown more by passing dog walkers than we were in the first one. But they are more confident. Well, they more confident dog walkers. They were more They didn't care who was yeah. around.
0: But that's um, fine. But um, but please, um, please do um please do throw up anything on Twitter um, putting in our handles if you um, have particular interests that you would like us to cover. Yes, we will get some other people in. It won't just be us
1: uh, talking a sort of faltering stream of nonsense. We will get some some other people in. So, okay. Well, I think we've rambled to a conclusion. So that's probably a good place to stop us today. So thank you for your time.
0: Thank you very much, people of the world.
1: Bye. Bye.
0: Bye.